We uh, have finished the Christmas season for those that follow the church year, and we are in the season of Epiphany. Uh, and Epiphany is this time when we're looking at a manifestation of God. Uh, that's the particular thing it's looking at. But it does a little more than just look for God, as we would recognize in Jesus Christ come to earth. That's why it follows Christmas. It anticipates the proclamation of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is going to do in the world. The ministry of Jesus Christ, but especially the death and resurrection, and how that will inaugurate and bring in the kingdom of God. That all starts today, if you follow the church year. And so today we're going to look at this epiphany moment. Uh, usually it culminates or starts in the wise men, and the wise men encountering the child Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Matthew 2 in just a moment. I do encourage you to find that, however you're reading the scripture today. Um, but if you look at the book of Matthew and how it starts... Uh, the first three chapters, before it even begins chapter 4, you get Matthew setting us up for this idea of epiphany, really, from the beginning. The genealogy of Jesus is right there at the beginning, that thing that we usually pass over very quickly. And that's, that's setting us up for the history. Somebody who reads that should recognize the, the past and what those names all represent in God's grand story of finally bringing the Messiah. That's what Matthew would recognize. That's why he gives it to us. Then you have this moment where uh, in Matthew... The angel visits Joseph and says, here's what's going to happen. This baby's going to come, call him Jesus. And he's technically not yours, but he is yours. And Joseph has to make a decision. Does he accept Jesus or not as his own? Really, you could narrow down the point of the book of Matthew right in that moment for us too. Do we accept Jesus as our own or not? Are we going to take in this divine manifestation of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God that he brings or not? That all comes, Joseph is the first one who's really confronted with this decision. Then you have the visit of the Magi or the wise men, which we'll talk about today. And then Joseph and Mary uh, and Jesus have to escape to Egypt, to escape a, a threat to Jesus' life. Then uh, they return to Nazareth instead of Bethlehem, back to their home in Nazareth. Then John the Baptist comes on. By this point, everybody's grown up. We, we skip a few in Jesus' life, basically. John the Baptist comes, he baptizes Jesus, and then Jesus starts healing. And it goes very fast from there. That's the beginning of chapter 4. So we're going to talk about the wise men, though. When they come in the midst of this, in those early days of Jesus' life, uh, and, and talk a little bit, and I want to start by kind of um, because we don't get a lot of detail about the wise men over the years, people have made up detail about the wise men. So we're going to try and take the first part of today to demystify a little bit of that and talk about what we know versus what we wish we knew. Um, so I have a couple cartoons. They don't actually meet up with my usual visual standard on the screen, but we're going to put them up there anyways. Uh, the first one says, I wonder if the three wise men said to Jesus, just to be clear, these gifts are for your birthday and Christmas. As a December birthday close to Christmas, that is annoying. Uh, two women talking together. A virgin birth, I can believe, but finding three wise men? And two others. Uh, after the three wise men left, the three wiser women arrived, bringing fresh diapers, casseroles for the week, and lots of formula. And then finally, Joseph standing there with the three wise men, and he says, three wise men, and not one of you brought chocolate? We do tend to make up a lot of details about the wise men, I would suggest. Uh, and, and we can have a lot of fun with it. But even over the Christmas season, uh, year in, year out, we sing things like We Three Kings and the first Noel. The first Noel hits both the shepherds and the wise men. And it, it 
if we sang it just a couple weeks ago, it's very directional about where the star is if uh, you get to about verse 3 or 4. But particularly We Three Kings is an interesting one, and I don't want to ruin the, the, the carol for you or the hymn, um, but it does a number of things that maybe goes a little beyond what we know. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder stars. So there's a lot about their travels there that, you know, we don't know. They're kind of making flowery language about it. That's fine. But, but one of the things we don't know is how many of them there actually were. There were three gifts. It doesn't say there were three kings. We have made that assumption over the years. Scholars point out that the ancient Near East was typically a dangerous place to travel, so having just three doesn't make a lot of sense. Probably they were traveling in an entourage, especially if they're people who are notable. They probably have a lot of people around them. Secondly, uh, they probably weren't kings, is the second thing. Now, some people will say they're kings because we read from Psalm 72 this morning, and they'll go back to Psalm 72 and say, well, that anticipates. Uh, We don't necessarily know that. That's just one of the texts that people have used to to talk about uh, what happens. And it says kings. We heard it this morning. Probably these people are below that level. Uh, wise men, astrologers, magi, all of those make sense. People who would have been advisors to royalty or advisors to those at the top. That makes a lot more sense of who these kind of people were, but not actually kings. The whole idea of Orient is just kind of difficult anyways because it refers to a direction uh, which basically means not Europe or not the West. Well, it was all the Orient, so it's kind of misleading all by that. But then if you, if you sing the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, it does what some scholars and, and uh, people, thinkers have done through the centuries, is it tries to theologize the gifts beyond what maybe the, the kings, that, or the, the wise men, sorry, I even used it, would have even known. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't have that significance, but the text doesn't necessarily give us that significance. And so the three, We Three Kings of Orient Are talks about the gold being for a crown, the frankincense being for deity, and the myrrh being for burial spices, uh, anticipating his death with the myrrh, the gold anticipating that he is the king of kings. Uh, And the frankincense you could do a couple things with. Um, We three kings seems to take it as as acknowledging that he is a god in human form. Uh, But a lot of scholars point out that frankincense was a a scent that would be used by the bridegroom, so you could theologically take it in the direction of uh, the bridegroom and the bride being the church, that Jesus uh, is the bridegroom ready for uh, the final consummation of the kingdom. All of that probably goes a little beyond what the Magi were doing. They brought gifts fit for a king, and that's probably about what they were doing. That doesn't mean we couldn't do more with it, but, but we don't want to go beyond the knowledge of the wise men, too, if we're going to understand it in its first sense. So let's go to Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and see what we can get out of that, and see the facts as they're given to us by Matthew. Matthew writes to us, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah, or where the Messiah was to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we have sort of Herod, and then we have the wise men here. And I think uh, the way that Matthew presents the story to us, it's easy to put the two uh, next to each other and see a pretty big contrast. And that's what I'd like to do with the text right now. Herod, Herod the Great, King Herod, he's called here. He ruled from about 40 B.C. to about 4 B.C. in Judea, so part of the ancient Roman Empire. He was Jewish himself. He was very much liked by the Roman government and liked the Roman government as well. He looked like he looked the part for a ruler for them. He did what they wanted him to do. Um, he was very much disliked by the Jewish population on the ground. They did not care for Herod at all. Herod uh, did some things that were helpful to the area for sure. Mostly they helped him, but they looked like they helped other people. He rebuilt the temple, which had been generally in ruins uh, since uh, the exile uh, in the 500s BC, had been rebuilt under Nebuchadnezzar, but never had the grandeur of the original temple. And Solomon saw it as his duty to give it the grandeur of the original temple, of course, as Herod's temple. uh, And so it was really for his own glory and sense of pride, not for God's. Now, when Herod took over, and this is significant, um, some of those on the ground in Judea of the Jewish population tried to overthrow Herod right away. Um, And it took a while, a couple years, to stabilize things. And they tried to do it. Um, Herod was liked, as I said, by the Roman Empire. So there was never going to be a threat within the empire. But to the east, outside of the empire, there was a threat. And the Jewish population that rose up against him tried to get people from the east to help them uh, take out Herod and take back the land. Because of that, Herod was fairly distrustful of those coming from the east, first of all, and he was frankly paranoid and distrustful of just about everybody. Um, And he built lots of fortresses, some of which are still around today, um, and always looked out for himself and his protection. Um, And he was a really mean guy. That's the other thing we might add to it, and very power-hungry. He was married ten times, In the last decade of his reign, uh, he killed at least one wife and two of his sons in that time because everybody was trying to get his power and control, is what they were trying to do over that last decade. To the point, he was so ruthless and mean that even Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the whole Roman Empire, I'll throw in some Greek here this morning, is reported to have said that he would rather be Herod's hus than his huios. He'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. So awful was it to be in Herod's family, according to even the Roman emperor. That's Herod. That's who the wise men end up seeing. Then you have the wise men. And there's a lot of questions about who these guys were. That's why we make up all these details about who these guys were. Every nativity scene that we have is wrong, by the way. They weren't there when the shepherds were there, most likely. Uh, It's unclear if they were Jewish or Gentile. Some want to say they were one, clearly, and some want to say they were another. Um, But either way, one of the things I think is interesting to us is that these guys come out of the East 
and they come to Bethlehem, and it always seems like it's out of left field. Random guys coming from the east to, to find this little child, Jesus. But, but let's put this in context of the history that we get, particularly through the prophets uh, of the Old Testament, that if we remember our history of Israel, Israel broke up into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, at one point. And the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled out east under Assyria. Uh, Assyria came in in 722 and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took sort of the cream of the crop, the people who had the most money or the most power or whatever, and either killed them or sent them to Assyria. Uh, they, They exiled them there. And then in 597, the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, the temple, Jerusalem, uh, the temple is destroyed, and uh, Babylon, which by that point has taken over Assyria, now exports a bunch of people uh, off to the east as well. And by the time we're in Jesus' day, Persia has taken over all that, uh, and then we're in, a lot's gone on over there. But basically, that exile never truly ended. There was a trickle of people that came back, and we get that, the reporting of that in Ezra and Nehemiah as they try and put things back together in the land. But there were still people back east in what would be modern-day Iraq in Iran in that direction. So that's why some people can look at this and say, well, they could have been Jewish. They seem to know something of the story. Um, and some people could say, well, they could have been uh, Gentile who had connection with the story in some way. Some people want to postulate uh, things like Zoroastrians, uh, astrologers, that's another religion from uh, modern-day Iran, or Yazidi even, I've heard. Who knows? We just don't know. But, but we can at least have some confidence that they, the story made it out there at one point, and they probably had some connection with it in one way or another. If they came from a place like Babylon, what we're talking about, just to give us context, is a 900-mile journey. We don't know that that's exactly where they came from, but I calculated it this week just for fun. Uh, A camel walks at three miles an hour, so does a human. 3.1 to be exact for both of those. Um, And if you did that journey using the ancient road system, you're talking about at least two months. Um, You can shave off a little bit of time if you go all the way to the coast and then go down in the ancient world and take a boat. You might shave a day off of that. So you're not talking years, you're talking months for the travel, but you're talking a pretty serious investment uh, in travel because they're probably walking this or taking camels or something to that effect. They obviously knew they were looking for something important or someone. Uh, They bow down and worship him in the end. Um, And so there's some sense that this is a Messiah. When they meet Herod, they get more insight into that, obviously. Um, So they knew something of the story. We know nothing about the star, by the way. I've, I've listened to a video this last week of a Christian astrophysicist trying to talk about what it could have been. We just don't know. Some people say it's an angel. Some people say it was an actual nova. All kinds of things are postulated. Whatever it was, they were attentive to it, and they saw it, and it led them in the right place. The text is very clear about that. And when they arrived, so that we're also clear on the timeline, Jesus was two years or younger But it doesn't appear that they're still in that infancy stage in a manger. It appears they've moved on to a house, and he's a child, Jesus, it says. So that's why we can kind of say they were probably never with the shepherds. This came a little later in the whole thing. But we put these two people next to each other. Uh, There's a real curiosity on the part of the wise man. And on Herod, there's a curiosity, but it's not for a good reason. And and what you get is a portrait, really, of of what you see throughout Scripture of the foolish and the wise, essentially. And literally, we use the word wise men in this case. Herod represents the fool throughout Scripture. 
as we see him. He seeks to destroy Jesus because it threatens, and he's afraid of what he'll lose. He's the fool. He won't do God's will or God's will. He wouldn't even think of looking that direction. He's never done that in his entire life because he wants what he wants, and he wants it now. And, and his reaction finally to Jesus uh, coming on the scene when he hears about this is he has all the children two and under in, Drew, in Bethlehem killed. So that we're clear on the numbers, uh, that's probably something like 20 to 50 children, not thousands. Tragic nonetheless. But some people will point out it's not written up in history books and that sort of thing. Probably because for a bloodthirsty guy like Herod, it was a small affair. An awful affair. But a small one to him. The wise men, however, they seek to find Jesus because of curiosity, because they're expectant. They're not worried about what they'll lose. They obviously give up quite a lot to make the trip out there, and they're wondering what they'll gain. And you see, the fool throughout Scripture uh, scoffs at God and God's ways because they're concerned about what they'll lose. And the wise person throughout Scripture looks at what they'll gain through Jesus Christ, or through God, but specifically we say through Jesus Christ. We know that part of the story now. And Jesus even talks about this very clearly in his own Sermon on the Mount at the very end of it. What does he round out uh, one of the m- most pivotal things he said in j- chapter 7 of Matthew? He talks about the wise and the foolish. In Matthew seven twenty four and following, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice... It was like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. What I think is worth noting about both Herod and the wise men is they both recognized something big was going on or something was up. They both recognized something is out there. And the question for us as we encounter this part of the story of Jesus' life is, Do we recognize the authority of Jesus Christ? Maybe put in a different way, does Jesus have something to say to us that will fundamentally change our lives? Is there something so big, so newsworthy, that we'll drop everything to go find out? That we're not afraid of the cost, but we're expectant of the gain in Christ. You see, the Messiah had arrived, and they're discovering this. And they were counting the cost of what that meant. And so I want to make this point today and just ask a couple questions. Though it may be costly, the wise seek God with all they have. And so the first question, are we like the wise men, the magi? Are we wise? Do we have that sense of expectancy? And do we seek to worship and know God for who God is? Maybe another way to put it, are you willing and open and ready to be instructed by God? By all that God has to say to you and me? Or even be rebuked when we're wrong? This is an area where I think culturally it's seeping into the church. We're much less ready to be rebuked when we're wrong. We want to be right all the time about everything. 
friend of mine in a, a moment of this, who, uh, this, this couple, very godly couple, friends of uh, Stephanie and myself, um, highly regard them. Uh, husband and wife, husband had one of these moments um, where he remembered something and his wife just had a tendency to forget. And so he was remembering something for her, and he's kind of like, you should remember this. But he said, so then after that, I went to get ready for work after feeling pretty good about myself about reminding her of this piece of information she should know. And he said, I went to to go take a quick shower before I went to work. I get into the shower, and I'm in a prayerful attitude and feeling pretty good about myself for remembering something my wife should have remembered. And I'm thinking, as I'm praying, I'm kind of thinking, boy, God, isn't it so nice that my wife has me to remember these things? It's, it's really pretty, pretty amazing what kind of a memory you've given me that I can be this kind of a husband to my wife. And he said, and God responded back to me and said, okay, did you wash your hair? And he said, at that moment, I couldn't remember. I stood there in the shower thinking, did I? Did I wash my hair? I don't know if I washed my hair. Oh, it was a humbling moment for him. Simple, but humbling. Are you ready, willing, and open to be instructed by God and even rebuked, if need be, to be corrected? You seek to worship and know God. It's really a worldview question, ultimately, when you get down to it, a worldview issue that we run into. When God acts in the world around us, are we willing to actually adjust our understanding of the world when God acts so that it meets up with God's way, not just what we wish God's way was? Are you wise? The other side of the coin is to be, have the spirit of Herod, to be foolish about the whole matter. Do you seek enough knowledge about God so that you can inoculate yourself from what God desires of you? Really, are you king in this situation versus God? Again, it's a worldview question. It's, it's an issue of when God acts, am I going to dig in? And say, no, that's not the way it is, God. I know that's not the way it is, because that's not the way I want it to be. That my ways are higher than God's. I was struck as I was uh, doing this, um, in my personal devotional reading, I've been reading out of Jeremiah right now. And, and I'm, I'm struck with how much both of these things happen. The wise and the foolish actions happen throughout Scripture. They both occur all the time. Um, there's an awful lot of foolishness that goes on in the book of Jeremiah. So I'll read just a tiny portion of it as an example. The people in Judah are potentially going to be attacked by the Babylonians with some help from others because of their disobedience. Jeremiah has prophesied, you need to turn your ways around, orient your heart towards God, get rid of your idols, and then you'll be free from this threat. But if you don't, they're going to attack. And here's what they say. In this one particular part in verse 40, chapter 44, they say to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven. We will pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. That is, we're going to dig in and continue in our ways because we like them better than God's ways. And what happens? They suffer the consequences. It's costly. 
As we look at what Matthew is telling us when he gives us this moment in Jesus' life, the story of the Magi, you see the genealogy Matthew tells us about. Joseph accepting Jesus, the Magi. But then by the time we get into the ministry of Jesus, four chapters in, Jesus calls his disciples, and then he starts to show what the kingdom is like. He starts healing people. You thought the world was just broken, but guess what? Jesus says, I've come to fix the thing. I've come to put it back together in ways you never even imagined. And Jesus starts off his work announcing that the kingdom of God is here and what it's going to be and what it wars against. It wars against the powers of this world and against our own worldviews when they're wrong. And Jesus comes out strong. We already read from the Sermon on the Mount, but he comes out strong in that Sermon on the Mount telling people what he's going to do, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who, who are humble and know it and know their position before God. Blessed are those who mourn for all the junk that's going on in this world now and the injustice, and they recognize that God's the one who can fix it. Blessed are the meek, the ones who are going to remain reserved and humble before God, but will stand up when he calls and be bold for him on that day. Jesus continues on. He says, guess what? Guess what? Your heart's in sync with the God of the universe, the God who's going to put it back together when you're one of these people. Guess what? You're part of the kingdom. When you not only don't murder somebody, a lot of us can achieve that, he says, but when you're also not a jerk, when you also don't gossip with others, when you're also not a slanderer, when you don't assassinate somebody's character, when you don't troll people on the internet, when you don't take out your anger on people just because you're angry, when you treat his creation well. Jesus says, guess what? Your heart's in, in sync with God when you not only don't commit adultery, a lot of us are good on that category, but also when you don't sleep around, when you don't cohabit, when you don't watch stuff that's junk food for the soul that just destroys you, and when you don't objectify my creation by making it just parts and pieces. But people. Jesus says, guess what? Your heart beats with the very heart of God and with his kingdom. When you don't just break an oath, or keep, when you keep an oath, but when you also don't lie so people know that they can trust you. When you reveal who God is through your character, basically. When you love your enemies instead of want to do harm to them. When you give, then guess what? You're the wise at that point, not the foolish. What I find really striking about this, though, because as we hear something like this, we hear of the wise men, they come with this great curiosity and a sense of wonder to Jesus. And we hear of Herod, and he, he comes at this with a sense of fear and loss and great power that frankly will be overwhelmed uh, by God's power. But a lot of us can find it easy to live in between those two worlds without realizing it. Right in between the questions. To live in between the response of the wise and the foolish. We are just enlightened enough just moral enough to live on with really without need of a savior, we think, and without an authority over us. And when we do that, we tend towards the Herod side, not the wise men. What's so striking about the wise men is the one thing that they do that's virtually unthinkable, whether they're Jew or Gentile, it's crazy. Because if you look again at the whole book of Matthew, 
It's not until the very last chapter of Matthew that some of the disciples bow down and worship Jesus, fully recognizing who he is. Some. But what happens with the wise men when they come? Chapter 2 of Matthew, verses 10 and 11. It says, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They got something nobody else gets for the whole book right away when he's a child. Isn't that amazing? They humble themselves before the child Jesus. Not before Mary and Joseph, before the child Jesus. And that poses the question to us, are we willing to humble ourselves in such a way, to posture ourselves in such a way, to be wise in such a way? may very well have cost them after that. I don't know. They had to follow a different route, but it took them a long time to get there. It took them sacrifice to come that way. It cost Mary and Joseph to accept this way. It cost the disciples. And I would suggest to you, though it may be costly, the wise seek God with all they have. May we be so humble and so wise. Let's pray. Father, may we be in sync with your very heart. May our hearts beat like yours. May we be wise. May we be discontent when we're even just a little off from your holiness. May we not simply be content with the love half of the equation of who you are, but may we only be settled when we recognize that your love and holiness come together and form your goodness. And it's that that we desire. It's that that the wise follow. May we experience your goodness through your son, Jesus Christ, today, and may we be humble and humble ourselves before Jesus Christ. For those that sit in this room, Father, and don't know Jesus, give us that posture right now that we may come to know him. And for those of us, God, uh, that feel discontent in so many areas of life, we're just distant enough from you to feel off. God, restore in us the joy of your salvation today. Help us experience what life in your kingdom is like even now. Even though we know the fullness is coming, help us experience that now. To be those who are blessed and those who bless others in your name. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.